Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Putin's statements after his Kremlin meeting with German Chancellor Scholz today that he was withdrawing some troops and that of course he does not want war, going on to say that there was a precedent for war in Europe with NATO's war against Serbia, which Scholz pointed out was a response to Serbian genocide against non-Serbs, to which Putin replied, genocide is happening in the separatist Donbass region against ethnic Russians by Ukraine. Joining us to discuss whether we are on the brink of war or not is Joshua Schifrensen, a professor of international relations with the School of Global Studies at Boston University, an affiliate of MIT's Security Studies Program, and a fellow with the Woodrow Wilson Center for Scholars. His research focuses on U.S. grand strategy, the durability of NATO, U.S. relations with its allies during and after the Cold War, and the rise of China. He is the author of Rising Titans, Falling Giants, How Great Powers Exploit Power Shifts, and we'll look into his recent article at the Washington Post, Acting Too Aggressively on Ukraine May Endanger It, and Taiwan, and assess whether we are heading for not just one Cold War that we have with Russia, but a second Cold War with China too. Then we'll investigate a little understood but massive disaster that a war in Ukraine could unleash, if any of Ukraine's 15 nuclear power reactors were struck or their backup power was cut off, and speak with Bennett Ramberg, who was a foreign policy analyst in the Bureau of Politico-Military Affairs at the Department of State during the George H.W. Bush administration. He's the author of Power Plants as Weapons for the Enemy, an Unrecognized Military Peril, and we will discuss his article at Project Syndicate, The Risk of Nuclear Disaster in Ukraine. Then finally, we'll speak with Stanley Greenberg, who was a pollster to President Bill Clinton and Vice President Al Gore, British Prime Minister Tony Blair, South African President Nelson Mandela, and more. He is a founding partner in Greenberg Research and was a co-author with James Carville of the New York Times bestseller, It's the Middle Class, Stupid, and his latest book is R.I.P. G.O.P., How the New America is Dooming the Republicans, And we will discuss his article at the American Prospect, Democrats Speak to Working Class Discontent. It's the only way to mobilize blacks, Hispanics and Asians, not just white workers. With all hands needed on deck to save American democracy, he makes the case to reverse the Democrats' loss of working class voters and that there is no time for strategists who look down on or rule out voters. And before we go to our first guest... Since we are now fully independent, your support for this program is vital to keep us online and on a growing number of radio stations across the country. And while we operate on a low budget, we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org to help ensure that background briefing is sustainable into the future so that we can continue to provide a daily news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests, both at home and abroad. And for those listeners who have issues with PayPal, we now have made it easier to donate simply by credit card. So if you are in a position to give support or have been meaning to but have been unable, please go to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. 
And joining us now is Joshua Schifferinson, a professor of international relations with the School of Global Studies at Boston University, an affiliate of MIT's Security Studies Program, and a fellow with the Woodrow Wilson Center for Scholars. His research focuses on U.S. grand strategy, the durability of NATO, U.S. relations with its allies during and after the Cold War, and the rise of China. And he is the author of Rising Titans, Falling Giants, How Great Powers Exploit Power Shifts. And he has a recent article in the Washington Post, Acting Too Aggressively on Ukraine May Endanger It and Taiwan. Welcome to Background Briefing, Joshua Schifferinson. Thank you. Thank you so much. Delighted to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, there was a busy day in Moscow with the new Chancellor of Germany, Scholz, uh, meeting with uh, President Putin at the Kremlin, and they had a press conference afterward in which Putin said that he was withdrawing some troops and that, of course, he doesn't want war. And he went on to say that there was a precedent for war in Europe with NATO's war against Serbia, which Schultz pointed out was a response to Serbian genocide against non-Serbs, to which Putin replied, genocide is happening in the separatist Donbass region against ethnic Russians by Ukraine. So... This is a, a difficult situation, isn't it? When you, when you can't even agree on history, which obviously Putin and NATO do not agree on, but there is no genocide happening in the Donbass, but there could be a massive loss of life in Ukraine itself. So what do you think is about to happen? A withdrawal or a war? Well, that's the million-dollar question, and obviously this is a very fluid, fast-moving uh, environment. Uh, you, know, you know, last week, if you had asked me, I would have said it was 60-40 likelihood of a war. I think right now we're probably talking about 40-60 with maybe some positive movement here. The fact that Putin uh, for the last several weeks has been talking about the West trying to goad him into an attack, suggesting he's wise not to stage an invasion. The fact that in the last two weeks have had Macron and Schultz uh, go to Mo- go to Moscow for these conversations. The fact that Putin even praised some of the statements that have been put, uh, some of the offers that have been put towards him, all suggests that diplomacy is not dead. I think the more we see individual heads of state uh, going to Moscow suggesting to Putin that Ukraine is not going to join NATO, the lower the likelihood is for a war. So I think these are very positive developments. But this is the last uh, of the leaders that are making a pilgrimage to the Kremlin, as far as I know. And that's why, I guess, U.S. intelligence has been suggesting a war could break out as early as tomorrow. That's 100% true. This is the last of the uh, journeys. I think the fact that we had Blinken speaking with Lavrov today, which is a very continuing the conversations from afar, uh, is a very good sign. And I do think in the next 24 to 72 hours, we're going to get some sense of whether uh, what Russia has heard thus far from the suite of leaders that have gone to Moscow is enough to make him uh, wait for time or play for more time. Well, he's got all the time in the world because he's not going to stop putting psychological and military pressure on Ukraine to destabilize it. He's already got Ukraine here. He's got a big chunk of the east and there's no reason why he won't continue to weaken and destabilize that country, which he doesn't recognize as sovereignty at any rate, because I think he's got bigger plans, doesn't he, in terms of 
the grand bargain that he wants from the West, and I don't know whether they've offered him a little nibble on it, but uh, isn't that his ultimate goal, a new strategic arrangement? Well, I, I think we need to differentiate between two different things here. One is this question of what is Putin's ambition vis-a-vis Ukraine? And the second one is what does Putin want vis-a-vis the West? And are the two distinct? Many people certainly claim that Putin's broader ambition is some kind of new altered relationship with the West writ large. Uh, my read on the current situation is that it's certainly possible Putin uh, wants to fundamentally realter the relationship between Russia and the West. But at the same time, I think there are some signs that this is really much more, this might be much more about Russian red lines. You know, way back in 2008, then Ambassador Moscow and CIA Director William Burns even wrote cables saying that Ukraine was a very bright red line. And so it's very possible, at least in my view of the situation, that Russia really is worried about uh, Ukraine falling into the Western orbit, perhaps one day joining NATO, and a commitment to Finlandize to keep Ukraine neutral or something of that sort might be enough to de-escalate the current situation. Now, you're right that under those conditions, it's, it's, uh, nothing stops Putin from continuing to, continuing to muck about in Ukraine. That's thuggish behavior. We should not condone that. But at the same time, by holding open the possibility of Ukraine joining NATO for risking a war uh, between Russia and Ukraine that could go very bad places. So it's interesting that you just brought up Finland, Joshua Schifferson, because I haven't heard it mentioned before. So Finland does have a sort of neutrality, even though now there's been talk that if Russia does invade Ukraine, that Finland and Sweden might want to join NATO. But... Describe the relationship and the status of Finland in terms of neutrality and how that could apply to sure. Ukraine. Well, sure. So, during, you know, we have to go back to Cold War times. Finland obviously was living in the shadow of the Soviet colossus. It had no chance of standing up against Moscow on its own. And because it was fairly far away from the United States and the other members of NATO during the Cold War. This is when Europe was very much divided. There was very little that the United States or others could do to support Finland. So the result was what was called Finlandization. Finland agreed to basically uh, accommodate itself to Moscow's foreign policy objectives. It it exhibited a fair degree of independence, but never crossed Russian red lines or then Soviet red lines, excuse me. It never seemed to challenge Soviet uh, prerogatives. It certainly never flirted with the idea of joining the Western orbit, to uh, fall into the Western orbit. And it maintained fairly good military forces on its own for deterrent purposes. And under those conditions, the USSR basically left Finland alone. It allowed Finland to have a basically a capitalist domestic society, basically embrace democracy, uh, and engage in trade and foreign relations. So it's possible at least possible, that we could imagine a similar situation with Ukraine going forward. Is that outcome, is that Finlandized Ukraine better or worse for individual Ukrainians? Uh, I'm in no place to speak for what Ukrainians want. I would just simply note that if indeed Ukraine is not going to join NATO, then Ukraine has to somehow uh, decide what it's going to make of uh, living the shadow of the Russian colossus. 
And again, I'm speaking with Joshua Schifferson, who's a professor of international relations with the School of Global Studies at Boston University, an affiliate of MIT's Security Studies Program, and a fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center for Scholars. His research focuses on U.S. grand strategy, the durability of NATO, U.S. relations with its allies during and after the Cold War, and the rise of China. And he is the author of Rising Titans, Falling Giants, How Great Powers Exploit Power Shifts, and he has a recent article of the Washington Post acting too aggressively on Ukraine may endanger it and Taiwan. So, I mean, the reality is, I guess, Joshua, we're already in a Cold War with Russia. Are we going to get into a second Cold War with China? I mean, in other words, two Cold Wars at once just seems like too much. Um, I, I, I agree with you. And, and I do think um, it's worth noting that I, I'm actually not as convinced as you that we are destined for a Cold War uh, with either China or Russia. I think we are faced with long-term challengers. We're faced with long-term competitors. But I, I still hold out some degree of hope that one or both might avoid kind of the deep, visceral, ideological competition that we associate with Cold Wars. In Russia's case, I have that hope because Russia really just isn't um, it's really a shadow of the former Soviet Union, right? It, it, uh, it, it's a rump Soviet successor state, and it lacks the military might, certainly the ideological fervor of the former USSR. And frankly, the U.S. has been very clear uh, that long-term it plans to diminish its presence in Europe and focus elsewhere in the world. So I hold out some hope that with Moscow, the U.S. can avoid or at least back out if we are already in one a second Cold War uh, with Moscow. When it comes to China, things are obviously much more complex. China is a much more dynamic economy. It's a much larger country in terms of its potential military might. It has far more influence in world affairs. And although it hasn't done so to date, it is plausible uh, that one day in the future, China might begin enunciating an ideological challenge to the United States. That's a recipe for a a real uh, nasty competition. At the same time, because the, some of those issues are all potentialities and the fact that we don't have the sorts of power vacuums along China's periphery that made the Soviet Union such a powerful competitor for much of the Cold War, threatening competitor for much of the Cold War, the U.S. might be able to take a little more of a restrained standoffish approach towards managing relations with China. And the fact that the U.S. and China might have to work together on issues such as economic interdependence, uh, climate change and beyond – I give them some reason to at least make common cause going forward. So I think long term, I think the risk of a Cold War is far higher with China. I don't think we're there yet. There might be some pushback on it. With Moscow, of course, uh, we might be in a a particularly nasty period right now. But I think longer term, uh, U.S. attention will be drawn elsewhere. Well, Russia's ties, of course, to Europe and to Germany with the chancellor just visiting the Kremlin today. A lot to do with gas uh, and Nord Stream 2, and there's some doubt as to whether Scholz is completely on board Biden's idea of cutting off Nord Stream 2 in the event of Russian tanks crossing, but there are ties there. So I'm not sure that the ties that Russia already has with Europe, and particularly in terms of trade, that they could somehow sacrifice those ties and make up for them with China. Would you agree? Oh, I, I, I think that's uh, 100% correct. You know, China and Russia, too, don't have the best of histories. Of course, Germany and Russia don't have the best of histories either. But I'm saying it's an, it's an even-run thing. And right now, uh, 
Europe is a far bigger market for Russian gas, for Russian oil, uh, and China seems to lack the same trade ties to Russia. So I think longer, I think right now, at least for the foreseeable future, Europe is the focal point for Russian uh, foreign policy. I agree with you. But the fact that Putin has a gun pointed at Ukraine, and if Mm -hmm. he does, as he suggested today, that he may be taking his finger off the trigger, that doesn't mean that the gun is no longer going to be pointed, right? Oh, that's right. I mean, this thing could go on for a long time. And when you talk about it's not really a Cold War like it was during the uh, period of the Soviet Union, Putin in many ways... When he's made it clear that he thinks that's the greatest geostrategic tragedy in history, the the dissolution of the Soviet Union. So I don't know what the situation is vis-a-vis who's saving face here. Obviously, Biden, the last thing he needs is a war, which will raise the price of gas, and he's already getting slammed on inflation. It doesn't seem like anybody really wants this war, and the only person who's created this crisis is Putin. So what do you think about this notion of retreat and face-saving? Is, there, is that a bigger problem, as some analysts suggest? Well, so, so I think we should back up for a little bit. I, I, I agree with you that the current crisis is very much of Putin's making. I think the longer-term causes of the crisis, the United States, NATO, Russia, and others have all played a role in kind of setting up the chessboard, as it were. You know, Putin's moving the pieces right now, but the chessboard's been set up over time by a variety of actors. And I say that because um, I think longer term, all parties would like a face-saving measure. Putin would like uh, the Ukraine issue to go away, would like to be resolved in his favor. The United States and NATO don't want to have to risk a war with Russia for the sake of this open-door principle and uh, holding firm the future of European security arrangements. So I think all parties actually have uh, a reason to find some kind of way to backing out of the crisis. I think what your your reference to a gun pointed at Ukraine is actually very well taken because longer term, uh, you if the U.S. and others agree to Russia's demands and uh, operationalized, so they all seem to know, which is to say Ukraine's not going to join NATO, then Ukraine has to figure out what it's going to do with a Russian gun that is pointed at its head, not not just because Putin seems to be willing to use a gun, but simply because the balance of power is decisively not in Kiev's uh, favor. And so Kiev is going to have to reconcile itself to some of these outcomes, irrespective of how this current crisis plays out. But going back to the Finland analogy of a neutral Ukraine like Finland, Finland is, of course, a part of the EU, and it was Ukraine joining the EU that prompted the 2014 Medan clash. And so as far as Putin's concerned, the EU and NATO are one and the same, aren't they? I, I, You know, what goes through the mind of Vladimir Putin is a mystery to me, but I think it is very safe to say that he does not draw a sharp distinction between EU and NATO. So when I talk about Finlandizing, uh, Finlandizing uh, Ukraine today, I think it's important to remember that during the Cold War, there was no EU. Finland is a member of the EU today, but it wasn't during the Cold War because that thing didn't exist. So the set of arrangements that would be needed to Finlandize Ukraine today are broader, deeper, and require much more complex institutional buy-in uh, by the different member states of these institutions than anything that had to do with Finland during the Cold War. I agree with you. It's a much harder uh, nut to crack. 
but it's still, as I say, I, it hasn't really been explored. And I'm no, just wondering what the glimmers of hope here, what Lavrov was talking about in his colloquy with Putin uh, yesterday on Russian state TV, and then again today the announcement that they <coughs> Russia's pulling back troops now. Right. On the other side of the coin, the overheads are saying that uh, the Russians are building military hospitals. And the how, how do we square these? Right? Pardon? No, how do we square these is your question, right? How exactly. Do these two? Right. Yeah. Well, I, so, so, so I think they're actually reconcilable in a pretty clear fashion. I mean, right now, the United States uh, on its own and the NATO members, you know, we had the leaked uh, reports, the, excuse me, the leaked replies given to Russia's treaty proposals uh, back in December, which were even back in December. And neither the United States nor NATO as a whole were willing to sacrifice the idea of a of the open door policy, saying any state which meets criteria could potentially be a NATO member. However, the way to get around that, of course, is to have, since NATO operates via consensus, to have the individual member states or several individual member states, as the case might be, each telling the Russian leadership bilaterally, privately, however one wants to think of it, that they will not allow, that they will not support Ukraine's bid for membership. So I think the glimmers of hope you alluded to are the fact that we've had Macron and Schultz apparently uh, signaling that there's no appetite for taking Ukraine into NATO, meaning that they themselves, or France and Germany in this case, would presumably veto Ukraine's bid for membership, which meets one of Russia's key criteria. Now, that gets you to the glimmers of hope. What about this troop buildup? Here you have to think a little, we have to think a little more broadly. Of course, Russia really would like a firm commitment, commitment and it really presumably would like more than just two member states, NATO member states, to say that they will under that they understand and will accede to Russian concerns or take Russian concerns seriously. So I think part of this troop buildup might be an effort to A, see if they can get NATO as a whole to sign off on it, or B, incentivize uh, other member states, not just France and Germany, to similarly tell Russia on a bilateral basis that they will uh, not support Ukraine's membership bid. So it's kind of a continued pressure campaign to move the goalposts closer to what Russia would like. Well, Joshua Schifferson, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Joshua Schifferson, who's a professor of international relations with the School of Global Studies at Boston University, an affiliate of MIT's Security Studies Program, and a fellow with the Woodrow Wilson Center for Scholars. His research focuses on U.S. grand strategy, the durability of NATO, U.S. relations with its allies during and after the Cold War, and the rise of China. And he's the author of Rising Titans, Falling Giants, How Great Powers Exploit Power Shifts. We're going to take a brief station break and back investigating a little understood but massive disaster that a war in Ukraine could unleash if any of Ukraine's 15 nuclear power reactors were struck or their backup power cut off. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. 
And joining us now is Bennett Ramberg, who was a foreign policy analyst in the Bureau of Politico-Military Affairs at the Department of State during the George H.W. Bush administration and is the author of Nuclear Power Plants as Weapons for the Enemy and Unrecognized Military Peril. And he has an article at Project Syndicate, The Risk of Nuclear Disaster in Ukraine. Welcome to Background Briefing, Bennett Ramberg. Well, thank you, Ian, for having me. Well, Ukraine, of course, we already associate Ukraine with the Chernobyl disaster. So Ukraine has already suffered a massive, the world's worst nuclear disaster. And already today, there have been cyber attacks against that have shut down two uh, banks in Ukraine, including Ukraine State Savings Bank, denying people their ATM banking services, etc., also, the Ministry of Defense has been also attacked by cyber attacks and its website been shut down. So if indeed war is to break out tomorrow, as some predict, although President Putin is suggesting uh, he doesn't want war and that he's pulling troops back, that hasn't been verified by overheads. In fact, overhead satellite imagery shows the building of military hospitals uh, happening on the border. So... We don't know what's going to happen the next uh, day or week, but your scenario is just appalling, and I had no idea how vulnerable the whole country is to a a conventional attack on uh, nuclear facilities. So walk us through what the targets might be, and uh, of course we know in warfare the first thing that happens is infrastructure is destroyed, electricity is cut off, uh, etc., well, indeed, uh, you know, this is the first situation where you have a, uh, inv- a potential invasion of a country with uh, multiple nuclear power plants. We've never, we've never really seen this before. And uh, in the case of Ukraine, there are 15 nuclear reactors located in four, four uh, compounds. And uh, so Ukraine uh, just has an enormous uh, numbers of, of these plants. And the, the concern, as you've pointed out, infrastructure is attacked in time of, of war. And among the infrastructure that is attacked commonly is energy facilities. And the question then becomes, would uh, nuclear sites be attractive targets? Now, this clearly would not be desirable. There's the legacy of Chernobyl. And there would be objection to uh, attacking these plants intentionally. But uh, in time of war, stuff happens. Things happen. And um, these plants incidentally could be struck as well. Uh, not only the plants directly, but feeder lines, for example, to keep the plants open. And so there's multiple ways by which these plants could be uh, could be attacked, and two, as well as cyber attacks, actually. And were that to occur, you would have a uh, Chernobyl redux. And you're not going to have uh, first responders responding because they're going to be concerned about the war fighting that's going on around them. You're also going to have reactor operators who are going to be fleeing the plant, concerned for their safety, not only from the, uh, the plant's uh, situation, uh, but... Uh, uh, generally, uh, for their sa- their safety in the war setting, and so this would be a very unique situation and uh, a very very uh, concerning one. But if you go back to uh, Chernobyl, millions of people suffered psychological traumas. Seven million people received social compensation. Vast areas of the country are still sealed off in a kind of no man's land, and the economic losses uh, amounted to hundreds of billions of dollars. And Japan, uh, from Fukushima in 2011, they've spent hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, and they're so continuing can, to spend hundreds of billions of dollars uh, to, right. to address the issue. And that was issue. only, what, a tenth of the uh, radiation of the Chernobyl? That, that, that's correct. Uh, you know, the Japanese were fortunate in one regard. Uh, much of the radiation blew into the ocean. And so, uh, but in the case of uh, Chernobyl, uh, 
all those uh, figures that you cited are the uh, the uh, presumed figures. One of the surprises, however, from Chernobyl is the the loss of life. It's been far less uh, than anticipated. Uh, there are estimates, uh, and they remain estimates, that uh, up to uh, 5,000 people, this is what the World Health Organization uh, uh, suggests, and others as well, international institutions, uh, may die in, in 50 years from the, from the time of the accident. What's more definitive is the number of thyroid cancers, particularly among children. Uh, uh, these are not lethal cancers by and large, uh, but uh, some thousands of cancers definitively have uh, occurred, uh, particularly among children, in the uh, in the aftermath, in the year or a couple of years, a few years after the accident, in the case of Chernobyl. Uh, but here we're dealing with a situation where you have multiple reactors uh, that exist in a landlocked situation, and an irony uh, were the Russians to invade. Uh, the blowback uh, would be against Russia itself, meaning that uh, some of the radiation would flow uh, into into uh, into Russia. Well, that would indicate that they're not planning on, not that it makes any sense to hit these nuclear plants in the first place. Right, but, exactly. But as you pointed out, in the Yugoslav war, the Serbians thought about striking Slovenia's nuclear power plant early on in the in the Balkan war. And Azerbaijan contemplated attacking Armenia's uh, Mensambor plant in its uh, 2020 war. And then, of course, we all know that Saddam Hussein tried to hit uh, Israel's Demona reactor in the Negev Desert with uh, Scud missiles. I think one actually blew up the fence on the outer perimeter. But uh, if those missiles had been more accurate, there would have been a disaster in Israel. Uh, indeed. Uh, and, uh, in fact... Uh the Israeli plant has been talked about by the Iranian government as well as the Syrian government, that is, the Demona plant as a potential target. Um, you know, the Slovenia case is an interesting uh, case. The uh, Serbian Air Force overflew the plant, but there were uh, Slo- uh, Serbian nationalists that uh, thought about blowing up the Slovenian plant. This is in the midst of the Yugoslav Civil War. Uh, they thought about it, but nothing happened, and the plant closed. Uh, in fact, I was involved at the time uh, consulting with... Uh, uh, Austria, which was concerned uh, about the Slovenian plant, what would happen? And um, but the plant was closed. But the closing a plant doesn't mean the radioactive elements uh, d- disappear. Uh, it simply means operations uh, cease with regard to energy production. It might diminish the amount of radiation that be released, but it doesn't eliminate the problem. And again, I'm speaking with Bennett Ramberg, who was a foreign policy analyst in the Bureau of Politico Military Affairs at the Department of State during the George H.W. Bush administration, and he's the author of Nuclear Power Plants as Weapons for the Enemy and Unrecognized Military Peril, and he has an article at Project Syndicate, The Risk of Nuclear Disaster in Ukraine. And your article at Project Syndicate, Bennett Ramberg, The Risk of Nuclear Disaster in Ukraine, points out something that I, I wasn't aware of, and that is on March the 26th of 2017, the U.S. Air Force bombed the Syrian Takma Dam, which is 18 stories high and holds back a 25-mile-long reservoir of the Euphrates River. Apparently, they were operating under no strike orders, but nevertheless, they went ahead and U.S. Airmen bombed this plant, which would have unleashed a tidal wave that would have drowned thousands and thousands of people downriver. And it was just only dumb luck that saved the day because the bunker-busting bombs failed to detonate. So fill us in on that. I cannot believe that something on that magnitude happened without it being authorized. 
Well, this is based on a, a New York Times uh, reporting just a few weeks ago, a, a wonderful article dealing with this particular problem. And uh, what it highlights is the fact that stuff happens in time of war. Uh, operators in the field don't follow orders. They, they make mistakes. And when uh, people have commented on the piece that I su- uh, submitted to Project Syndicate, that, well, the, uh, clearly the Russians would not intentionally uh, uh, bomb the, uh, the nuclear reactors uh, situated across, uh, uh, across Ukraine. Uh, but, uh, but the risk, as a result of dumb luck, a bad decision-making, misunderstanding about the risks associated with these plants can result in a situation which actually happened in that particular dam. I mean, had the dam, this bunker buster uh, uh, bomb actually detonated, uh, the dam would have been destroyed and the, uh, the consequences uh, downriver would have been substantial. Literally tens and tens of thousands of people uh, w- uh, could have died. And there were strict orders given to these operators, uh, do not strike or hit the dam. Now, ISIS controlled the dam at the time. It was a hydroelectric dam, and there was some effort to try to uh, hit ISIS, uh, 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 those uh, individuals who were, uh, were at the site. But uh, the B-52 bomber was ordered by, by our special forces to, to hit, the, hit the dam, and uh, fortunately, uh, the strike that hit it did not destroy the dam. So my point being that similar problems, issues, can, can arise with regard to the, uh, the Ukrainian plants. Now, mind you, Ukraine has been concerned about this. In 2014, they appealed to the International Atomic Energy Agency. This is after the uh, invasion of Crimea. They appealed to the International Atomic Energy Agency and, um, uh, to provide assistance uh, to try to better protect the plants. And uh, uh, it's, it's surprising to me that the Ukrainian government at this point in time, at least I haven't heard any public commentary about the uh, vulnerability of the reactors in the country uh, at this point in time. Now, those reactors, by the way, provide up to about 40% of the country's electricity. There are some reports that not all the reactors are operating. Whether they're operating or not, the radiological problem still exists, not only within the, within the reactors themselves, but the spent fuel pools that exist that house the cores of multiple reactors. And were these fuels to be drained uh, as a result of bombardment and uh, uh, the uh, fuel exposed and fire uh, result, uh, we would have the initiation of large volumes of nuclear elements released in the environment, compounding things dramatically, dramatically. Well, we've already had this war going on now since 2014, 14,000 Ukrainian casualties. But back at the height of the proxy war in the Donbass, the Malaysian civilian airliner MH17 was shot down by a Russian Buk missile and over 300 people died, including 80 children. And that was, you know, still we don't know exactly. We, we know that the Russians were responsible and they moved the, the Buk came in from Russia and maybe it was manned by Russian proxies, but it was ordered by Russia and it was withdrawn. So there's no way in the world that Putin wasn't responsible for this, but I can't imagine Putin actually wanted to shoot down a civilian airliner, right? Because he was he was shunned at the G20 meeting that took place subsequent to it. No, it was, it's impossible that he would intentionally shoot down a civilian airliner. But this makes the point. The point is that mistakes are made in time of war. And as this war progresses, and you have the fog of war, the confusion of war, and uh, the, the, the plants exist. Uh, they can't be moved. They can't be shut uh, to the point that they pose no radiological uh, problem. But the plants clearly uh, ought to be avoided. But in some regards, they can't be avoided. For example, all these plants rely on external uh, electricity to keep the plants functioning. These electricity comes from other plants. They could come from coal fire or gas fire plants or even other nuclear plants. 
So uh, the plants need electricity to function. If those lines are cut, you have emergency generators at every nuclear reactor. The generators are powered by diesel fuel. If the fuel, the fuel can last for, I, I'm not quite clear if it's days or, or more, but once the fuel is exhausted, the generators are not going to be functioning and the plant will melt. So uh, even <clears throat> if the plant itself is not directly hit by munitions, the cutoff of electricity to the plant could result in this. Or you talked earlier in your opening about cyber attacks. Uh, cyber attacks can disrupt the operations of the plants as well. And, you know, the cyber attacks can not come directly from the Russian government, but you can come from others, for example, within Ukraine and the Donbass, you know, that have their gripes against the central government, for example. So we have multiple ways by which these plants can be hit and, and destroyed, and it raises some really uh, very, very concerning issues that will impact not only Ukraine, but it will impact Russia itself and actually Europe as the radioactive elements sweep through uh, the continent. Well, wasn't it the backup generators at Fukushima that the tidal wave destroyed and created the meltdowns there? Yeah, the Japanese, unfortunately, in the engineering of those uh, of the plants, did not elevate the uh, backup generators, so they were uh, sea level, uh, land level, let's put it this way. So when you had the tidal flood, they, they came in, those plants were drowned effectively. They couldn't function. As a consequence, what could have prevented uh, the, the melt at Fukushima, there were several reactors involved, was disrupted by the fact that the emergency generators were not available. And, uh, you know, this is a concern one would have uh, in the case of Ukraine uh, or, or any situation where, where war exists. Now, mind you, let me just give you a little bit of uh, history. In, in the history of bombing reactors, uh, countries have taken care uh, not to bomb uh, uh, operating reactors. And uh, the most uh, famous bombing, I guess, of a reactor, uh, most publicized re- bombing of a reactor, took place in 1981 when Israel bombed the Osirik reactor, this is a suspect uh, from the Israeli point of view, uh, French-provided nuclear reactor, a small reactor, but the Israelis presumably could provide uh, plutonium for a nuclear weapons program. But the Israelis uh, were determined in their planning not to bomb the reactor once the reactor was operating. And at the time of the bombing, the reactor was not operating. Now, this was an intentional bombing of a reactor. And this was, was again, a, a dedicated reactor. Uh, there's, there's debate whether it was a dedicated weapons reactor or not, but the Israelis presumed that. And so the reactor, indeed, was uh, bombed, but nothing was inside. Another case, uh, uh, just to provide some background here for the audience, another case was the bombing in 2007 of what's, what was called the Al-Kabir reactor. This is a reactor that clearly was a weapons-dedicated reactor situated in uh, northeast uh, Syria, uh, the Israelis uh, found that this Korean-built uh, and engineered reactor uh, was uh, to commence operations, and the Israelis uh, bombed that plant as well, destroyed the plant, and uh, that was the end of that particular program. In the one case where a commercial reactor was bombed, uh, that occurred in the Iran-Iraq War, where the Iraqis bombed uh, reactors under construction in Boucher. At the time, there were two reactors um, being built uh, by the Iranian government, and these were these were to be uh, power reactors. And the Iraqi government went after these reactors on multiple attacks, destroyed the reactors. But again, uh, there was nothing in the reactors because the reactors simply were under construction. There is, however, one case where a reactor um, was operating uh, or had operated, and that was in Iraq, a small research reactor in 1991 at the beginning of the uh, Persian Gulf War. The United States targeted a small uh, reactor, um, uh, which uh, is a small research reactor. Now, the reactor had operated. The, the information about uh, operations at the time when the U.S. bombed it is a little unclear, at least to me. In any event, no significant radiological consequence uh, resulted from that, uh, that particular attack. 
so, you know, we have these illustrations where countries, by and large, have taken care not to bomb operating reactors. But my concern with regard to Ukraine is these reactors are scattered in four locations around the country, and it may be an incidental uh, result of uh, the uh, Russian invasion that were to take place in Ukraine. And uh, this is a matter that really has to be taken seriously and addressed. Uh, these, there should be a, a red line, these, these reactors, against uh, certainly any attack in any way, and also mindful of the fact that they rely on off-site power. Well, just in closing, I'm, I'm curious to know why the U.S. attacked the Iraqi research reactor. In, uh, I, 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 I am unclear. I, I don't know. This has not been well documented. Uh, the, the, the fact of the matter did, did occur. There was some reporting. I, I, I read at one point that a nuclear material had been taken out of the reactor. When I looked at it more recently, it said no. The reactor was not operating at the time itself, but nonetheless, there were radioactive elements arguably uh, in, in the reactor, but uh, I don't know the inside story. Uh. Well, let's hope. Obviously, there's many reasons why there should not be a war in Europe and there should not be a war in Ukraine because of the massive civilian death toll that it would ensure if it's a full-scale war. And uh, there are indications that maybe it's not happening. Uh, But on the other hand, intelligence sources indicate that it still could happen. And at the very least, of course, the tensions will continue. There's no way that pressure against Ukraine is going to... If I may add, for this very reason, for this very, given this risk, for this very reason, for their own sake, the Russians did not invade uh, Ukraine because of the risk, not only to Ukraine, but to Russia itself. Well, Bennett Remberg, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you very much, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Bennett Remberg, who was a foreign policy analyst in the Bureau of Political and Military Affairs at the Department of State during the George H.W. Bush administration, and he is the author of Nuclear Power Plants as Weapons for the Enemy and Unrecognized Military Peril, and he has an article on Project Syndicate, The Risk of Nuclear Disaster in Ukraine. We're going to take a restation break. We're back looking into how all hands and deck are needed to save American democracy, and that In order to reverse the Democrats' loss of working-class voters, there is no time for strategists who look down on or rule out voters. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Stanley Greenberg, who was a pollster for President Bill Clinton and Vice President Al Gore, British Prime Minister Tony Blair, South African President Nelson Mandela, and more. He is the founding partner of Greenberg Research and the co-author with James Carville of the New York Times bestseller, It's the Middle Class Stupid. His latest book is R.I.P. GOP, How the New America is Dooming the Republicans. And he has an article at the American Prospect, Democrats Speak to Working Class Discontent. It's the only way to mobilize blacks, Hispanics, and Asians, not just white workers. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stanley. Thank you. Thank you for the invite. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about this important topic. Well, thanks for joining us. And Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez did an interview with The New Yorker in which she was asked whether she thought we'd have a democracy in 10 years, and she said uh, that she's not sure we will. You start your 
piece at the prospect talking about how 80% of Republicans, according to a recent poll, believe our country needs a powerful leader in order to destroy the radical and immoral currents prevailing Mm -hmm. in our society today. And then there's another report from the Public Religion Research Institute that said a third of Republicans believe violence is justified to save our country. And the University of Chicago did a study that found that 21 million Americans feel that violence will be necessary, and you have 400 million guns in private hands in this country. So can you make the case, or do you fear that we are heading, one, towards the end of our democracy, and two, into a possible civil war? What I did not factor in when I looked at the trends in the country is that Republicans would view these trends as so fatal for them um, that they had to do everything possible to save the country, including ending holding free elections, free and fair elections. Um, they made they made that you know, a ju- a judgment with Trump ahead of their party. It's clear he's the leader of the party. And I think every every leader in the country has to look at it and say, look, we have to do whatever has to be done, obviously lawfully and with great courage, figure out what the problems are and figure out how you're going to produce the biggest possible majority for the Democrats in the coming elections in order to make it uh, impossible for them to stop the democratic process. So the Democrats need 8% more votes Uh, just to break even. So are you suggesting, Stanley Greenberg, that on top of that, I mean, Trump did, as you point out, did bring out a lot of new voters. Do the Democrats therefore have to find a whole bunch of new voters to overwhelm the massive and comprehensive voter suppression underway? They have to, look, the Democrats can be competitive. I mean, the 2020 election was a competitive election even though it was very tilted to the Republicans in that year. You already had the post office that was blocking votes. You already had them making it you know, much harder for Democrats to vote. Uh, when you look at the data, they increased their turnout. Uh, white working class voters increased their turnout by six points in 2020 compared to 16, uh, where we had a marginal uh, increase. So they, they already had tipped the balance. Uh, We're already trying to make it harder for the average voter to vote. Um, And the issue here is, can we be motivated to vote? Can we be consolidated? And can we be deeply motivated? Um, And with increased motivation, it's not so much a question of finding new voters. If you look at what happened in 2018, that was an historic turnout. Democrats need an historic turnout, but it needs to be one that's of their voters. Well, I find it extraordinary, Stanley Greenberg, that Indiana Republican Congressman Jim Banks and Senator Marco Rubio are rebranding the GOP as the party of the working class. So how do you see that? Well, they are. <laughs> uh, the, indeed, that's what's been happening. But the, what I've tried to show in this article in, in the American Prospect is that Democrats... You know, because of the way Barack Obama ran for president, you know, he was first the candidate of candidate of change because of his opposition to the Iraq war. Um, the case he made for his election was that, you know, anybody, look, anything can happen in America, you know, if I can be elected. And that's true. 
was an extraordinary event, extraordinary phenomenon. Um, and we all desperately wanted him to succeed. But he also chose not to make a economic case against what was happening at a, at a, at a period, the high point of the Gilded Age, not to make the case against what was happening with the top 1% and CEOs, corporations, and what was happening with the deep inequality. Um, the case he made uh, was that we have a divided country. The Republicans are the most polarizing force. And if we can just overcome that division, uh, we can address the problems. But at the height of the financial crisis, um, at the deepest point of the Great Recession, um, he was saying to be, he was not, he never addressed the profound anger of working class voters. And that's all working class voters runs across Hispanics and Asian Americans and, um, and black Americans, as well as white working class. Um, they were deeply angry with the bailout of the banks, uh, with how rigged the political system was. And that set up the ability for Donald Trump to run for president and run as the president who was going to be the greatest job creating president there. And again, I'm speaking with Stanley Greenberg, who was a pollster to President Bill Clinton and Vice President Al Gore, British Prime Minister Tony Blair, South African President Nelson Mandela, and more. He is a founding partner of Greenberg Research and the co-author with James Carville of the New York Times bestseller, It's the Middle Class Stupid. His latest book is R.I.P. G.O.P., How the New America is Dooming the Republicans. And he has an article at the American Prospect, Democrats Speak to Working Class Discontent. It's the only way to mobilize blacks, Hispanics, and Asians, not just white workers. Well, I recall when Bush was desperately, along with his Treasury Secretary, trying to uh, staunch the crash on Wall Street, that the initial bailout was rejected soundly by the Congress. So they should have seen that there's a, a grassroots revulsion to the idea of bailing out Wall Street, surely. Look, look, I'm look. I do believe that the, that uh, President Obama and, and his you know team, you know, probably saved global capitalism from a you know from a, from a deep recession. They did very brave things um, in making the banks sound, uh, but it was a it was a very partial solution to the problems facing the country. Uh, you know, we what we saw from about 2000 on was really the crash of manufacturing and end of uh, kind of rural and small town blue collar communities um, that were eroded in, uh, in that period leading up to the crash. And so people were building for a president um, who would make this country not rig, uh, level the playing field, make it work for the middle class again. And that, and that was true for all working class voters, including the base of the Democratic uh, you know, Party. Um, and by the way, if you listen to David Axelrod on the interviews that he's giving now today, that he, you know, that he kind of agrees, looking at it then, uh, that what they were doing probably backfired with the working class, um, that they were, you know, they were, you know, addressing issues that in a way that was really going to work uh, for all working people, including the base of Democratic voters. Um, they had to have done acted in a very different way. Uh, the, the good news, though, is when you when you look at the data, this is still a Republican Party that's not for the working class. This is still a Republican Party that wants a small government, wants to deregulate, uh, wants to give tax cuts to the top, you know top one percent, uh, and deregulate uh, for big corporations. So when Democrats 
speak out and speak the critique about leveling the playing field and offer the kind of messaging Democrats did uh, in 2018 midterms, they get you know big turnout and a big response. So there's there's an opportunity. There's, there's just no time not to get focused on this and really addressing the problems the country face. So President Biden does seem to have a connection to the working class with his roots mm. and with his policies mm. and his ability. And he's a huge proponent of reviving mm. the union movement. And that would make a huge mm. difference, I think, to the funding for the Democratic Party. But at, the, at this point, he seems to be doing what you're arguing in your article was a mistake, and that is telling everybody how great the economy is. And he's not getting credit for it, by the way instead of doing what you're suggesting, which is to tap into the discontent. Look, I'm recommending that President Biden be President Biden and deliver the critique that he did when he ran for president and to uh, make the argument that he's been making to the country since he was in office. Uh, this is not a, this is not a, look, not a great uh, lift uh, for him to offer this critique. This, it, this is his analysis. You know, look, I've watched it with leaders I've worked with around the world who, you know, who make tough decisions and end up with an economy that is doing well. But I also have found out wherever I have worked, it's a, it's a bit of it's a bit of macho, particular, you know, I think particularly, you know, white male leaders or male leaders who think they should get credit for a strong economy. But in my experience, it takes a very long time of uh, economic growth to translate into real gains in income um, and, and a real long time before working people who are skeptical about politicians and government are going to give any political leaders credit. Um, I think it's much more important uh, for the president to make the case that he wants to level the playing field and make this uh, uh, government and country work for working people um, and that it's the top 1% and the CEOs and big corporations that have been rigging the game against them. Um, and in fact, his policies uh, are meant to raise taxes on big corporations. Uh, and so, um, you know, you're pushing an open door. I mean, this is what this is what the president is saying. But I think I think the the pressure to deal with the the fact that they're not getting credit for a strong economy, macro economy, just you know, just you just have to get that push that away. Um, it's not it, it's being humble, I think, but it's also just seeing the lives of working people. We're still dealing with people whose real incomes are not going up, uh, who are facing these rising prices that get in the way of, you know, of seeing the larger argument. The larger argument is the Republican Party is against the big tax cuts that uh, the child tax credit that uh, Biden has passed um, and against the uh, making the big corporations pay their fair, fair share of taxes uh, is against these policies that have reduced health care costs and drug costs. I think he can get to that message. You know, though I, you know, we'll we'll see what happens. I think on the State of the Union, uh, but I, you know, but I think I think there's a lot of folks uh, around the president who understand the political project that brought him into office. Well, in effect, uh, Stanley Greenberg, it seems that President Biden is running against Donald Trump yet again, and Donald Trump, of course, is a massive fraud, and he is uh, epitomized by what's described as plutocratic populism, that was his success. But since right. it's all a lie, can the lie be exposed? And can you also combine the lie with the big lie about the fact that he lost an election, which he simply can't accept because apparently 
his father was sufficiently brutal uh, in his upbringing, and this is a sick man who can't deal with being a loser. But we're all suffering the consequences, and American democracy now itself is in jeopardy because he controls the GOP, and they're perfectly happy to go along with this massive voter suppression campaign based on the lies that he's propagated. So can you combine those two messages that we're getting shafted by the 1% and it's not fair, and two, that if you don't get out to vote, you may not get to vote in the future, or at least you get to vote in a phony election like they have in Russia. Right. Look, what I what I argued in the article in American Prospect is that Democrats created a huge opportunity, a huge opening for Donald Trump, uh, because they were not advocating, uh, you know, for working people. They weren't challenging what had happened as the country became more and more unequal. They were not challenging the uh, the excesses of big corporations, and they weren't advocating big changes that would benefit uh, the middle class and working people. Uh, but I think they can. I mean, that's what they've been doing. I mean, our, you know, what our data shows, you know, is that if you look at what's, you know, what's happened with the American Rescue Plan, if you look at child tax credit, uh, the working class under age 50 uh, was becoming more open to Democrats. Um, I think it's just, you know, clear eyed. Voters want big economic and political change. They don't think Democrats have been advocating for that. Um, and I think there's a real opportunity for, I think, Biden to enact parts of Build Back Better and, uh, and above all, the taxing big corporations, uh, making them pay their fair share as part of his overall message. And then you get to a big contrast uh, with the Republicans. Um, so I think there's there's a real opportunity uh, because Trump had the the floor to himself. He was the only one advocating big economic and political change. And we didn't understand it. Uh, if you look at what happened in the 2016 election, uh, you know, he was running against corruption, against trade agreements that were hurting working people. Um, and um, Secretary Clinton did not you know, speak to those issues, was reluctant to speak to them. Uh, but Biden, I think, can clear the field here and draw a very sharp contrast that is uh, mobilizing uh, for working people, for all working people. So just in closing then, uh, Stanley Greenberg, Trump did better with, certainly with Hispanic voters in 2020 than he did in 2016. And after all, after four ruinous years and uh, building the wall and demonizing Latinos and starting his campaign out in 2016, uh, talking about Mexicans being rapists and murderers, he still got 38% of the Latino vote, and the highest mm-hmm. Latino vote was gained by George W. Bush at 44%. So that's still pretty mm-hmm. high, isn't it? That's pretty troubling when you're talking about, you know, in your article at the American Prospect, mm-hmm. Democrats speak to working-class discontent. It's the only way to mobilize blacks, Hispanics, and Asians, not just white workers. So what's the explanation there in terms of your polling? Look, what our, look, what our data showed is that um, that all working people uh, wanted to see us addressing, uh, you know, health care. They wanted uh, you know, reduced health care costs. Uh, they wanted to reduce the power of big corporations. They wanted a big corporation to pay their fair share. Uh, and they, they also wanted crime and security to be an issue that 
um, Democrats uh, wanted to do something about. That was not part of our message. They thought we wanted to defund the police. Now, defunding the police is also an opening because it shows, it says that you are not focused on dealing with the community safety. And that was particularly important in the Hispanic communities. Uh, and so the messaging that I have here that's effective is not, is not just let's level the playing field and make the government work for the middle class. It's also saying we're worried about crime and safety um, and we respect police and they are, we want to have re police reform as well. Uh, but that is also part of our, if we're, if we're for the working class and really are seeing them and hearing them, it includes the cultural issues as well as the economic. But Democrats are credible, can be credible on those issues. Um, and as we'll see um, going forward, and indeed President Biden has already been talking about you know, funding, not defunding the police. Look at Democratic candidates in, in Los Angeles and other and New York and other places. Democrats, I think, can find their voice. The problem is this is so urgent, they have to find their voice quickly. And <laughs> we're running out of time, aren't we? Just in closing, Stanley, if our democracy is at stake, this is, mm -hmm. again, uh, I don't know how you make that front and center it's so obvious to some, but not to many. I mean, when you think about how quickly the Soviet Union collapsed uh, mm -hmm. and that caught everybody by surprise, it's not inconceivable that we could have a collapse of our, our democracy. And yes. I just don't know how you get through to people the urgency of the moment. Which is why I, w I think I would try to be as provocative as I was in the article in American Prospect. Um, I wrote in the article, it says, we don't have time for fools uh, or for people who have false science. Uh, get rid of sensibilities. We need to offer brave solutions and move very quickly. We have solutions. This is not imaginary. We have very powerful solutions to push back against Donald Trump and defend democracy. Well, Stanley Greenberg, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Stanley Greenberg, who was a pollster to President Bill Clinton and Vice President Al Gore, British Prime Minister Tony Blair, South African President Nelson Mandela, and more. He is a founding partner of Greenberg Research and the co-author with James Carville of the New York Times bestseller, It's the Middle Class Stupid. His latest book is R.I.P. G.O.P., How the New America is Dooming the Republicans. And he has an article at the American Prospect, Democrats speak to working class discontent. It's the only way to mobilize blacks, Hispanics, and Asians, not just white workers. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.
Oh 